Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. For such a large organ, ED docs spend proportionally little time thinking about the liver. Sure, we're often in the neighborhood, whether it be doing a fast or diagnosing biliary disease, but the liver really doesn't get the credit it's due. Nonetheless, from time to time, whether it be the cirrhotic patient gushing from a varix whose INR is greater than his shoe size, or the confused hepatic encephalopathy patient levitating off the bed using nothing but asterisks, there are definitely times where the middle child of the abdomen steals the show. Today, we're on a mission to reconnect. Liver, meet EM doc. EM doc, meet the liver. I think you'll really get along if you get to know one another. And back on the show, we have my good friends with a collective clinical experience of I won't say how long, Drs. Walter Himmel and Dr. Brian Steinhardt. It's great to have you both back on the show. Good to be here, Anton. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me again. All right. Well, let's jump right into our case here. A 55-year-old woman known to your ED for alcohol use disorder presents to the ED with a four-day history of progressive altered mental status, generalized weakness, fever, and abdominal pain. The patient's husband stated that she was confused, complaining of moderate generalized abdominal pain, and had fevers as high as 39.2 degrees Celsius. There was no history of headache or neck pain, no nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, dyspnea, cough, or dysuria. Her medical history was notable not only for alcohol use disorder, but also for hepatitis C. She's been compliant, according to her husband, on spironolactone and lactulose, and was started on Percocet two weeks ago after he broke his ankle. On physical exam, she appears ill. Temperature was 39 degrees, blood pressure 100 on 50, pulse is 110 beats per minute, and respiratory rate is 20. She's obtunded and disoriented to place and time. Her neck is supple, you don't see any rash, petechiae or ecchymosis, sclera are clear, there's no nystagmus, chest is clear. Her abdomen is distended with a fluid wave, and she has minimal generalized tenderness to palpation without any obvious peritoneal signs. She has pulmonary erythema and mild asterisks. Labs come back showing a high white blood cell count and creatinine, low platelet count, low sodium, and low glucose. Her lactate is 3. She has mildly elevated liver enzymes, elevated bilirubin, a low albumin, and an INR of 4. So before we get into the nitty-gritty details of liver disease for the emergency doctor, Dr. Steinhardt, what are your initial thoughts on this case? Well, she's not going home. I think you have to uh, toss the net wide in this case. There seems to be an infection going on with decreased level of consciousness, and you must try and find the sources of those two and the interrelationship between the two. So ABCs are being looked after. For now, I think she's stable, even though the vital signs are somewhat altered. So you want to ask yourself on history, were there similar presentations of what was the diagnosis? Is this 
lady continuing to abuse alcohol? Did she abuse the Percocets and take too much of that or other medicines? Specifically for liver disease, you want to ask about whether her sleep pattern has been altered over the last few days in that patients who develop hepatic encephalopathy often have a reversal of the diurnal pattern of sleep. So they're up all night and sleeping during the day. Not 100% specific or sensitive, but if you can elicit that, it's more supportive of a complication, hepatic encephalopathy. And then on the examination, it's interesting that she does not have jaundice. You don't need jaundice for any complications of the deteriorating liver disease patient, and you should not lose your concern for that just because you don't see a jaundice patient in front of you. You mentioned generalized abdominal tenderness, and I'd look specifically for right upper quadrant tenderness, if not hepatomegaly. This can steer you towards certain other alcohol liver complications. Thinking about other complications that can be fatal for this patient, I'd look at urine lights. I'd order them. We don't often do that in in patients, but it would be critical here. So that's my overall gestalt and synopsis of where I would go with this patient. This presentation is very common at my shop and I think anywhere in Canada, if not anywhere in the world, we're going to see this case, all of seven continents in the world. So it's a good case. Thanks, Anton. Fantastic. I love that clinical clue about the reversal of diurnal pattern of sleep as a clue to hepatic encephalopathy. Not always there, but that's a great one that you don't see in the textbooks. We're going to dive into all the aspects of what you just spoke about. Uh, Dr. Himmel, just any sort of general thoughts about this case that you want to hit us with? Yeah, so I'll take a very focused approach. My first assessment is this patient is seriously ill and at risk of decompensating very rapidly. So she's on lactulose and ildactone, so the person probably has a history of encephalopathy and they have a history of ascites, and now they've got a high temperature. So clearly to worry about sepsis, pneumonias, all the causes of high fever and so forth. The fact the INR is high, it tells her to deliver as well on the way to being uh, shot. Low platelets are a concern for cirrhosis. Uh, this person's very ill, and they're at big risk of some of the serious complications, including multi-organ failure, hepatorenal syndrome, and uh, florid encephalopathy getting far worse. So I think this person needs to be worked up quickly, and certainly go on antibiotics extremely quickly, and have a lot of contributing factors ruled out in the department. Couldn't agree more. All right. So we all know that alcohol use disorder can lead to liver failure. And we see lots of patients like this in the ED, as Dr. Steinhardt was saying. Let's talk about the triggers for decompensation. So why is this patient in the emergency room now? Dr. Steinhardt, you had mentioned, you know, has he overdosed on acetaminophen or opioids? Um, There's a whole bunch of triggers that can lead to decompensation in liver patients and in patients with alcohol use disorder. Dr. Himmel, can you give us sort of your short list of common triggers of decompensation in the liver patient? Well, I'll start by saying the triggers are often vague and very nonspecific. So the common triggers I've seen are basically ongoing drinking, malnutrition, trauma, adverse effects of drugs, uh, electrolyte disturbances, constipation, 
often those vague sort of non-specific things. Now, that being said, of course, there are the classical serious things we have to look for concurrently, but often don't find. So what are the serious things you have to look for? Infection, cellulitis, pneumonia, urinary tract infection. Always have to check for that, of course. You've got to specifically be concerned about uh, bacterial peritonitis, which can occur spontaneously. Uh, you've got to be concerned about Separatural hematomas, uh, myocardial infarctions, just a whole variety of things. But I would say quite often it's the subtleties that are actually the major contributing factors. Uh, malnutrition, ongoing drinking, falls, rhabdomyolysis. There's often nothing too hardcore to find, but certainly infections, upper GI bleeding, esophageal varices bleeding, uh, subdural hematomas, you have to look for it very vigorously. Yeah, and infections are a big one because they're, I believe, the most common reason for a liver patient to be admitted to the ICU actually is is for sepsis slash septic shock. And these patients, as we all know, are immunocompromised. And so sometimes their infection is quite subtle to pick up. So that gives us an extra challenge and their prognosis is worse than the healthy patient when they do get an infection. Dr. Steinhardt, Let's talk about some tests that you'd order at this point. So we've got our liver patient here. He's pretty sick. We've got our usual panel of blood work, got back an an albumin and a lactate. What else do you want on this patient? I think blood cultures have to be drawn. Uh, I think you have to tap the acidic fluid and send that off for stat analysis and cultures. You want urine lights because of certain hepatorenal syndrome complications that this patient may be heading toward. You could go through more COAG studies. Uh, You could go through in orders minor electrolyte tests. But I think, by and large, as Walter says, it's time for action. Uh, And I don't think any of the other tests will immediately impact on your management. And I would not rush for a serum ammonia, but I think we'll talk about that. I used to. I used to wake up the biochemist at four in the morning and demand a serum ammonia level on these patients, but that was when I was young and naive, and now I'm a little more experienced. So that's one test I would not push for. You draw it just because, but it's not going to influence my management. All right. What about the acetaminophen level? So, you know, I've read... Some people suggest any liver patient that comes in acutely ill, just order an acetaminophen level just to be sure. This patient was on Percocet, so certainly that's a possibility. Which patients do you order an acetaminophen level on? I mean, certainly uh, if they have overdosed on acetaminophen, you know, we have a very good treatment for that as time-dependent NAC. So when do you pull the trigger and order an acetaminophen level on a liver patient? So always, uh, I think uh, you want that level to be drawn. This patient is highly unlikely to have acetaminophen contributing to their liver failure. We'll talk more, but acetaminophen causes fulminant hepatic acute failure and not in keeping with this patient, but you never know. And uh, as you say, we have a fantastic antidote for acetaminophen, so in a fulminant hepatic failure, it's get the acetaminophen level, if not empirically start NAC as you're waiting to get the result back and weigh how that influences things. It's akin to trauma. What are the three 
most common causes of shock in the trauma patient, well, it's hemorrhage, hemorrhage, hemorrhage. And likewise, in the acute fulminant hepatic failure patient, it's acetaminophen overdose, acetaminophen overdose. Uh, so yes, you would draw that. Uh, not the classic presentation, but uh, again, it would be sacrilege to miss acetaminophen in any case of liver failure. And Dr. Steinhardt, this patient has known liver disease. In patients that do not have known liver disease, what are some of the common causes of, of acute liver failure, like fulminant liver failure? You had mentioned acetaminophen. Any other big ones that we should be thinking about when we're surprised by liver failure in an otherwise healthy patient? Again, acetaminophen overdose, acetaminophen overdose, the patient may not be forthcoming. There are drugs that can really wreck your liver in therapeutic doses. Interesting and timely, in the recent Canadian Medical Association Journal, there's an article authored by one of our senior surgeons at my shop who, a few years ago, developed cellulitis and dutifully went to his doctor who prescribed clavulin, and then uh, that cured the cellulitis, but it ultimately wrecked his liver and he had to go for a liver transplant. So even there's a whole slew of medications that can wreck your liver. Uh, so that's, a, DILI is drug-induced liver disease. You're going to hear that abbreviation time and again. And so that's important. Of course, the viral hepatitis, typically hep B, could be A, C, D, E. There's even an F that are less commonly associated with this entity, but certainly prevalent, despite nowadays a very curative cocktail to eliminate hepatitis B, and uh, many patients haven't taken advantage of that. So it's still very high in, in the list for acute fulminant disease. Mushroom poisoning is out there still. Many people I know forage and consider themselves experts and, and eat the mushrooms and always ask me to sample their pickings when I go visit them. And I, I always uh, kindly refuse. You can't mention acute fulminant liver disease without talking about Wilson's disease and Kaiser Fleischer rings for accumulated copper poisoning. So there we go. We've done it. There are many other causes of cirrhosis, but not so much acute liver disease. And in fact, when it's all said and done, upwards to over 20% of the time, you don't know. You can never find the exact culprit, so-called indeterminate or cryptogenic causes of acute fulminant liver disease. All right. Great list there. So the ones that we can do something about right now, certainly acetaminophen toxicity, you should keep your eye out for drugs. We're going to talk about drugs a bit later and which drugs we need to avoid in liver patients. But yeah, clavulin is one of those that I did not know prior to looking into uh, this podcast that can be dangerous for the liver. There's, as you mentioned, Wilson's disease. There's all kinds of there's autoimmune diseases. Uh, there's hepatic ischemia from a variety of causes. Shock liver is very prevalent. It's not an acute liver disease per se. It's a bit of a misnomer, but we see that often. Patient comes in with shock for other reasons that Walter already alluded to. And just with the ischemia of the liver, your transaminases are 50 times the normal limit. So the treatment, of course, is get to the cause of the shock, but this is 
secondarily another cause. Interesting, alcohol, you think, would be on the list, but alcohol causes chronic liver disease and should not give you the fulminant picture unless it causes alcoholic hepatitis. So that's an entity that we could talk about more, but that will get you into an acute on-chronic scenario. All right, Dr. Himmel, anything to add there? In terms of acute liver failure in someone who has no previous liver disease, I think this is a place where the enzymes are going to be very helpful. And certainly if the enzymes are up a great deal, you'll have a different differential diagnosis. So I've always learned the enzymes come up to five times elevated is mild, five to 10 times or five to 15 times elevated is moderate, and more than 15 is a lot of elevation. But certainly if you have a healthy patient who can sing with their liver function test elevated 15 or 20 times, that's acute fulminant hepatitis, then you have to a lot of tests right off the bat, uh, which includes the entire series of all your hepatitis virus testing, toxicology testing, uh, up to and including looking for Wilson disease, which can occasionally present very acutely. But certainly Tylenol, my starting point is I always check the level. All righty. Let's talk a little bit more about drugs and liver. So this patient was taking Percocet for his ankle fracture, which even in an otherwise healthy patient, in my book, is almost never indicated. Uh, listen to our podcast on opioid use disorder for the reasoning behind that one. But Percocet is especially not a great idea for the liver patient. You know, acetaminophen can be toxic to the liver, and opioids are metabolized by the liver as well. Dr. Himmel, what are some of the other medications that we use often in the emergency department that we should specifically avoid in the liver patient? We can certainly look up drugs in the eMERGE, but just give us kind of like your top three or four really common ones that we really need to be careful about. Sure. Well, I'm going to preface this by saying there's pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics. Pharmacokinetics is what you do to the drugs, and pharmacodynamics is what the drugs do to you. So in a very, very simplistic sense, here's the things to avoid. Avoid things that sedate you. Avoid analgesics, uh, other than a few. Uh, avoid narcotics, other than when you absolutely have to use them. Try to avoid antihistamines, antidepressants, antihemetics, anything which is sedating, which can cause hypotension, uh, which can interact with other drugs. Avoid drugs which are sedating and can lower your blood pressure and cause altered levels of consciousness and interact and cause QT problems. And those are the drugs we use all the time, actually. It actually includes Gravol, Stematil. It includes uh, drugs for headaches and drugs for depression, mood disorders. Those drugs you avoid or use with great respect. That would be my starting point. Now, there's a couple of specific drugs. NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. I would say in the presence of liver disease, those drugs are absolutely 100% to be avoided, other than perhaps aspirin, 81 milligrams to treat heart disease. And the reason is this. GI bleeding, gastritis, uh, renal impairment are all high-risk problems with liver disease. So NSAIDs are definitely out. Minimize uh, sedatives and antiemetics. Minimize analgesics. Uh, minimize drugs such as benzodiazepines. Those are things you really got to stay away from as much as possible. All right. I, I want to dig a little bit further into some of these drugs to avoid. You had mentioned that you want to avoid NSAIDs pretty much all the time in liver patients. You had mentioned that you want to avoid sedating drugs most of the time. 
If NSAIDs are often contraindicated in the liver patient and opioids can be toxic to the liver patient, Dr. Steinhardt, how should we approach pain management in the ED patient with liver disease? I'd reiterate what Dr. Himmel said. You want to avoid or minimize drugs with sedative properties or those that have long half-lives because you don't know how much hepatotoxicity uh, these drugs may have. You want to avoid anything that's constipating because that will decrease transit time in, in the bowel and increase ammonia levels and other toxins that contribute to encephalopathy. Uh, if you're going to use these drugs, I think you want to start laxative use empirically to increase transit time to try and avoid the sequelae of hepatic encephalopathy. We know now in the last decade that patients are coming in all the time saying, oh, I've got a fatty liver, I can't take Tylenol. And you're never going to convince these patients otherwise. But the studies clearly show, and the toxicologists, pharmacologists, liver specialists all agree, unless you're at end-stage liver disease, you can't take acetaminophen, yes, less doses, more spread out to the maximum, say, of two grams per day, not four grams today. So Tylenol is usually a consideration if necessary. If local anesthetics can uh, buy you time, that's great, like fascia iliacus block in a patient with a fractured hip, and that will minimize pain meds. If you're going to use sedation because of anxiety, uh, you want to go with a shorter-acting drug like lorazepam. So, But to get into opiates, I think Dr. Himmel already said, not a great class of drugs, but to discuss this in a little more detail, tramadol needs to be metabolized by the liver into an active metabolite. So in liver disease, if you've got that enzyme to begin with, uh, it's going to be reduced in function. It also t- increases seizure threshold. It gives you serotonin syndrome. So not a great drug in my mind to use in these patients. The longer acting morphine, hydromorphone drugs, we tend to stay away from. And I will use fentanyl. I use it preferentially in the ER. The nurses don't like it because you have to keep going back more frequently than the longer acting morphine, hydromorphone, but it's a good drug in these patients and it sticks around longer so the nurses don't have to go back so often. And you can't talk about analgesic in anyone without mentioning ketamine. So literature is full of ketamine causing cases of liver failure, but these are in patients who recreationally abuse ketamine, so high doses again and again and again. There is supportive literature in patients who are undergoing esophageal varicine banding. So as a procedural sedation, some people have published data using ketamine as an adjunct, and that doesn't give a bump in the LFTs in these lower doses. And in the scenario where I use ketamine is when I want to stuff patients into an MRI So these are patients who are typically intravenous drug users on high-dose opiate abuse anyway, and I've got to get that MRI because they come in with symptoms and signs suggestive of cotyquina syndrome, usually secondary to an epidural abscess. So I will use analgesic doses of ketamine in order to get that test done once and for all. So ketamine I use in specific instances with liver failure patients and works for me. 
I just want to put this in a bit of context, though. You said what you shouldn't do, but the truth of it is there are some drugs you are going to have to use, and there are drugs that are perfectly reasonable. We all agree, I think, Tylenol and low doses under two grams a day, even with significant liver disease, is almost certainly safe. The best narcotic to use intravenously, probably fentanyl. The best benzo to use, if you have to use a benzo rarely, is a benzo with a short half-life that has a renal metabolism, probably Ativan. How about seizure disorders? Well, there's a couple of drugs that are really bad. The Proate, Epival, very problematical with liver disease. Carbamazepine, Tegretol, very problematic. The uh, Latin, probably safer than those two. And the newer ones like Topamax, probably safer than those two. Antibiotics, most antibiotics are pretty safe. However, the one to keep in mind is actually the macrolides because macrolides are massive inhibitors of cytochrome 3A4. I'd be very careful with, uh, with macrolides. While it is true that clavulin, and while it is true that Bactrim, and while it is true that macrodantin can all give you idiosyncratic acute hepatitis, that is rare. And I don't want anybody to think those drugs are contraindicated. They're fine. Now, there are a couple of drugs that are very deeply influenced by pharmacokinetics, by the fact that you no longer have a first pass effect. And there are common drugs. They include beta blockers, which should be started in small doses. They include deltiazem and calcium antagonists, which should be started in lower doses. And certainly antidepressants like amitriptyline or triptyline are fine, but they've got to be started in very, very small doses such as 10 or perhaps 20 milligrams. The SSRIs are deeply metabolized by the liver. They're fine. They've got to be started in small doses. So certainly to say you don't use any drugs is foolishness. Know which ones are problematic and certainly start most of the drugs in small doses. So that's a wise approach. All right, so I'm going to try and summarize how to manage the liver patient in your merge with pain. Acetaminophen is okay in mild liver disease to a max of two grams a day, avoided in patients with liver failure or severe liver disease. Use short-acting opioids like fentanyl if you have to use opioids, IV. For sending patient home on oral opioids, probably hydromorphone is the safest. You want to lower the dose and you want to increase the time in between dosages and of course, not give them more than five or 10 pills. If you're going to use a benzo, Ativan is probably the safest one in liver patients. If you really need to take care of the pain now or you need to sedate a patient, ketamine is a pretty good choice unless the patient has a known ketamine use disorder problem. For antibiotics, avoid macrolides when you can. Think twice about clavulin. And for anti-seizure meds, Levetiracetam is probably your safest bet. You definitely want to avoid Tegretol, and uh, Dilantin is probably safer than Tegretol, but if you have Levetiracetam, that'll probably be the anti-seizure medication of choice. Tickets for the sixth annual EM Cases course, February 5th and 6th, go on sale November 10th at 10 a.m. EST and are limited to only 60 people, so this will sell out fast. 
Now, the beauty of the course this time around is that you can easily attend the course from anywhere in the world from the comfort of your own home. And we're lucky because the small group roundtable discussions that made the sold-out courses so popular in the past are perfectly suited for the virtual Zoom platform. So you'll get to discuss cases with EM Cases guest experts, Andrew Morris, Sarah Gray, Aaron Ciel, Andrew Petrosoniak, Justin Morgenstern, Kirsten DeWitt, and Maria Vankovic, just to name a few people. Again, tickets go on sale November 10th at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on the EM Cases website. Now back to liver emergencies. All right, let's move on to liver enzymes and liver function tests. So the first thing I want to get out of the way is the difference between liver enzymes and liver function tests. I have to say that this is one of my little pet peeves that I always hear people talking about liver function tests when they're talking about liver enzymes and vice versa. So before we kind of get into how to interpret these things, Dr. Steinhardt, what is the difference between liver enzymes and liver function tests, and why is that differentiation important? So liver enzymes refers to the intracellular enzymes that help produce protein synthesis is a major function of the liver. And when any insult to the hepatocyte causes necrosis, your transaminases are going to ooze out and increase in the serum. So it's AST, ALT, SGOT, SGPT, ALP, GGT, and God knows all the other enzymes that are a marker of necrosis. If you want to focus on actual function, then it's a synthetic capability of the liver. And then you're looking at INR, PT, and and serum albumin as markers of real liver function tests. Knowing the caveat for hypoalbuminemia, many of these patients also suffer from nephrotic syndrome and protein-losing enteropathy and malnutrition and heart failure that could also contribute to hypoalbuminemia. So, yes, a big difference. The natural progression is early on, specifically in alcohol liver disease, the liver is really engorged, if not with fat, and it's palpable, and you've got lots of hepatocytes. But as you get into end-stage liver disease, this organ is shriveled into, as I say, at least one quarter its size, and you don't have the mass of hepatocytes there to cause a huge bump in your enzyme. So you could have significant necrosis in end-stage liver disease, yet normal or near-normal liver enzyme counts because of this. It does make it a little bit challenging to come up with a solid, simple approach to interpreting liver enzymes and liver function tests. But how about we try? Dr. Hamill, given that we now understand the difference between liver enzymes and liver function tests, what's your approach to interpreting these tests? So albumin is a lovely test of liver function. INR is a lovely test of liver function. And bilirubin is a lovely test of liver metabolism. Now let's talk about the enzymes. And this is subtle. These enzymes are located in all organs. So AST and ALT and alkali phosphatase are enzymes we always talk about. So they are definitely produced by the liver, but they're also produced by kidney and small bowel and intestine and so forth. The enzyme which is the most specific for the liver is ALT. Very, very specific for the liver. If you've got liver disease, that enzyme is going to be up. AST is produced by the liver, but also many other organs. So we'll be up in liver disease, 
but not as specific as ALT. And the other enzyme we always measure, of course, is alkaline phosphatase, which is produced by two major organs, bone and liver. Every disease has patterns and every disease has levels of abnormalities. So what's the pattern? In pure liver disease, you're gonna have an elevated AST and an elevated ALT. In liver disease that's due to alcoholism, AST may be slightly higher. And the reason for that is that alcohol actually inhibits the production of ALT. And in liver disease that involves your bile ducts, in liver disease that's obstructed by nature, you're gonna to tend to have elevation of your ALP more than your ALT or AST. So we all know that hepatocytic disease raises your AST and ALT. We all know that obstruction raises your ALP, alkaline phosphatase, but they both tend to be raised. ALP more in obstruction, AST and ALT more in liver disease or hepatocytic disease. Dr. Himmel, you had mentioned the AST to ALT ratio for trying to determine whether liver disease is from alcohol or not. I've heard uh, mixed opinions about this. Dr. Steinhardt, is it true that you can distinguish alcohol liver disease from other types of liver disease based on the ratio of the AST to the ALT? Well, I know uh, the internal medicine people love to know this ratio if you're referring these cases. And yes, by and large, an AST-ALT ratio of two to one or greater is suggestive of alcohol liver disease. Dr. Himmel gave a good summary of some of the caveats included in that is NASH or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis that we see not rarely can give you the same ratio. Hep C, as it develops into end-stage cirrhosis, takes on the alcoholic liver disease pattern and can give you the same thing. And again, Dr. Himmel alluded that some of these enzymes are prevalent in other organs. And, and in particular, the AST is found in muscle. And we know that alcohol patients undergo rhabdo and, and all these patients undergo rhabdo. So you could attribute an AST elevation to rhabdo in anybody, not just alcohol, liver disease, and, and therefore get an elevation in this ratio. So like other tests, you have to use your clinical judgment and you can't hang your hat completely on a value. And the same, I think, is true for this AST to ALT ratio. All right. Any other comments about interpreting liver enzymes and liver function tests? Okay. I suggested anything that's elevated up to five times as mild. So certain people with chronic cirrhosis, uh, people on NSAIDs, people with fatty livers, tend to have elevations not more than five times. Once you've got massive elevations, like 15 times, now you're looking at a severe acute hepatitis and, and a toxic liver disease. So 15 times is a, up is a whole different series of differential diagnoses. AST definitely is found in myocardial muscle and in skeletal muscle. In fact, in the good old days, we used to follow heart attacks by following the AST. So if your AST to ALT ratio is unbelievably high, for example, if your AST is five times higher than your ALT, if your AST is way higher, that's probably not liver. If it's somewhat higher, well, it probably is liver and alcohol certainly is a, is a possibility. And the other thing I've learned, which is really quite hilarious, I learned this uh, at a conference many, many years ago, is that when you first have biliary obstruction or cholestasis, 
the first enzyme that goes up long before the alkalinized phosphatase is actually the ALT. So I've noticed time and time again in people with biliary colic with elevated enzymes or people with cholestasis, the ALT often goes up and then down before the alkalinized phosphatase goes up. I want to make a brief comment about alkaline phosphatase. The two commonest organs that produce it are liver and bone, and sometimes it's a bit hard to know which one it is. And you've got two options to figure it out. You can ask for isoenzymes, which will take forever, but you can do a small little tricky little thing and order something called the GGT, gamma glutamyltransferase, enzyme we've all heard about, but rarely order. GGT goes up with liver disease, but also a whole host of many other diseases, which is why we don't order it uh, as a rule. It also goes up with obstruction as well as hepatocytic disease. But if your alkalized phosphatase is four times normal and you're not sure if it's bone or liver, get a GGT. And if your GGT is proportionally elevated, then your alkaline phosphatase is probably coming from your liver. On the other hand, if your alkaline phosphatase is very high and your GGT is only slightly elevated or normal, it's almost certainly bone. Great. The mystery of the GGT elucidated right there for you with Dr. Himmel. Thanks, Walter. Before we move on from blood tests, the one thing that we see again and again in these liver patients is that they have a low glucose. And of course, you want to rule out hypoglycemia in any patient uh, who's altered. Dr. Himmel, why do liver patients become hypoglycemic and how should hypoglycemia in these patients be treated in the ED? Yeah, so it's important to note that in chronic liver disease particularly, and alcoholics, those with alcohol use disorder, I should say, particularly low blood sugar is a massively, massively under-recognized, under-treated problem for sure. So why do people with severe liver disease and why do people with alcoholic use disorder and liver disease get uh, low blood sugar? Well, here are the reasons. Because of kidney disease, lack of glycogen, lack of diet, starvation, gluconeogenesis, you get hyperglycemia, and it can be brutal. Knowing that these liver patients can often be hypoglycemic, I see people just throw in an amp of D50 if they see hypoglycemia and then leave. From a practical perspective, why is it important that these patients are often hypoglycemic? Your point is well taken in that sooner rather than later, that bolus of D50 is going to disappear. And then you, unless you give maintenance levels of sugar in the intravenous fluid, you're going to be back to square one. So I see it repeatedly because everybody thinks of normal saline or and or Ringer's lactate as a maintenance IV fluid for everybody. I think the error is that we fail to give D10W on a maintenance level or you're just going to get back into your quagmire again. So, and frequent AccuCheck's bedside sugar checks to make sure that you've got therapeutic glucose levels on board. Good point. In patients with severe hypoglycemia, it would be reasonable to use D10 or D25, actually. Some people with severe liver disease are going to have sugars of 1.5 or 2 millimoles, which is, I guess, about 36 milligram per cent or less, these folks may require D10 or D25. An amp of uh, 50 cc's of 50% dextrose is 25 grams. That's like two pieces of bread. That's not going to last very long. 
The other advantage of giving sugar in people who are hypoglycemic is people who have hypoglycemic liver disease have only one thing to live off, their fat. They're gonna get ketoacidosis, lactic acidosis, starvation ketosis. One of the essential treatments to prevent all those conditions and to manage them is to give sugar. So sometimes if the sugars are low, you've got to really keep a close eye on it and give D10 or even D25. You will never give D5 on its own. You're basically giving free water, and that's going to cause a major problem with hyponatremia. So you don't want someone living off free fatty acids exclusively. It, that's predisposed to hepatic encephalopathy and, and ultimately significant multi-organ failure. You mentioned multi-organ failure. I want to talk a little bit more about multi-organ failure. So... This patient that I've presented, their liver function tests look pretty bad. Uh, you know, they've got an elevated INR and bilirubin. Creatinine's high too. Their lactate is high. It looks very much like multi-organ failure just looking at these blood test results. So, Dr. Steinhardt, why is it that liver patients so often suffer from multi-organ failure? So, you want to look and step back, look at what the liver does and how its dysfunction affects other organs, and then we want to drill down into uh, more cellular dysfunction. So what does the liver do? As alluded to just before, it, necrosis will, will cause severe and rapid loss of metabolic function, resulting in decreased gluconeogenesis, decreased lactate clearance, decreased synthetic ability of albumin, decreased ammonia clearance, this causes metabolic alkalosis, hypokalemia, hyponatremia, hypophosphatemia, magnesemia, and you get high output cardiac failure with this azotemia, encephalopathy. So when the liver gets pooched, when it doesn't work right, the ripple effect to the just about every organ in the body, including the skin and the gonads. So there's that one effect for multi-organ failure. The other is the cytokine release that typically follows liver failure. And these ooze out of the liver and kicks off the systemic inflammatory response that we've been hearing about more and more over the last couple of decades that causes vasodilation and hypoperfusion and also is causative for multi-organ failure in this picture. So it's a dual-pronged causation here. And one of the major characteristics of severe liver disease is the state of massive vasodilatation. You have massive vasodilatation of your splanchnic system, massive vasodilatation of your arterial system, and that gives you the effective intravascular depletion of fluids. Ironically enough, when the kidney sees that, the proxoglomerulus senses you've got a, a shocky state. And, and, and then it, it begins to absorb sodium like crazy and produces spasm to try to increase your intravascular volume. So severe vasodilatation is part of the inflammatory state. It's a big part of liver disease. And when endothelium has an inflammatory state, it becomes leaky, which is a major contributing factor to ascites, of course. And of course, we haven't talked about portal hypertension with increasing ascites in your abdomen and translocation of bacteria. So the liver is a big deal. And when it starts to fail, because of all the reasons we've talked about, you get massive inflammatory and osmotic changes. All right, that's some fascinating stuff about how when the liver goes out of duty, the rest of you goes out of duty. Three words to remember are vasodilatation, bacteria, 
and portal hypertension. And that's actually what leads to a lot of these other problems that liver patients have. And one of those problems is hepatorenal syndrome. So let's talk about hepatorenal syndrome. I've always seen hepatorenal syndrome as something that's a little bit kind of nebulous and hard to actually put my finger on in terms of diagnosis in the emergency department. Dr. Himmel, how do we diagnose hepatorenal syndrome in the ED? Well, first I want to say hepatorenal syndrome is a real syndrome, and it scares the hell out of physicians to see all patients with liver disease. Because once a patient gets into hepatorenal syndrome, their mortality is 50% or even much higher in the absence of a liver transplant. So let's talk about kidney failure. People with liver disease are going to have bleeds, they're going to be malnourished, they'll have hypovolemia. So of course, they're going to get pre-renal azotemia or renal failure secondary to decreased intravascular volume. Sometimes they're going to get acute turbulent necrosis from uh, toxins and, and hypotension. Well, pre-renal failure and acute tubular necrosis are eminently treatable. They're treated with fluids. They're treated by removing toxins. They're treated through using uh, vasoactive drugs, and they are reversible by and large. But one of the characteristics of acute tubular necrosis is you get a very active urine with casts. One of the typical features of of dehydration perenal disease is you get a high BUN, higher than your creatinine, and response to fluid quickly. So the hepatorenal syndrome is a very distinct and different entity. And by and large, it's a very real entity, but it's an entity based on exclusion. If you treat the prerenal uh, problem with fluids, if you do a urinalysis, and surprisingly, there's no casts in it. If you give albumin and the patient doesn't respond, and then if you look at the urinalysis and you notice that the urinalysis has very, very low sodium, if you do your analysis and notice there's not much protein in there, you've got basically a very bland urine and a patient who doesn't respond to albumin and then a patient who doesn't respond to fluids. Now you've got something that's probably the hepatorenal syndrome. So there's many criteria for it, but this is how you sort of discover it all on your own. There's something weird going on. They're not responding to treatment. And that's the hepatorenal syndrome that you're about to discover. Okay, so just to review there, hepatorenal syndrome is a diagnosis of exclusion. And you fix what you think might be pre-renal failure, and they still have renal failure. Um, you have decreased urine output. You have a low urine sodium and no to little urine sediment. And that's probably hepatorenal syndrome, which has a very high mortality. And so you need to get help quickly if you're arriving at this diagnosis. Right. So that syndrome's got many definitions, but I'll give you some of the criteria. But once again, you almost approach each syndrome, number one, by thinking about it, number two, by treating all the other stuff, and then the patient's still in trouble. So if a patient has a creatinine of over 132, and they have a history of cirrhosis, and they have a history of ascites, and the urinalysis has very little sodium, so urinalysis is a big deal, has only a small amount of protein, and they're not in florid shock. If their creatinine has gone up 50% in a week or 100% in two weeks, and they're not in florid shock, and there's no other treatable condition, you've got hepatorenal syndrome. Why is that important? 
because without aggressive treatment, uh, that person will die or require a liver transplant. And without a liver transplant, they will die. The caveat is many of these patients are on diuretics that can alter sodium excretion. And so you may get a high sodium level in your lights. And so what you have to do is take them off the diuretic, wait a couple of days, obviously in hospital, until you could confirm the diagnosis that there's very low sodium in the urine once they're off the diuretic. Okay, sure. So tough diagnosis to make in the emergency department, but it's something that I think we should still have on our radar if patients aren't responding as Dr. Himmel outlined, if they're not responding to our treatments and if they do have a low urine sodium and little urine sediment, it should definitely be on the list of possibilities and we should be, we should be letting our ICU and internal medicine colleagues know about that. And of course, you measure the liver function test albumin. And if the albumin is low, they need a load of albumin, probably at least a gram and a half per kilogram of albumin. All right, that brings us to treatment of hepatorenal syndrome. So if you do suspect this in the emergency department, Dr. Himmel, how do you treat it? Don't give them diuretics, that's for sure. Okay, we know to avoid diuretics and benzos in, in most of these liver patients, unless they're in alcohol withdrawal, we give them benzos. But Treat low albumin enthusiastically, and don't be frightened to give 100 uh, grams of albumin, 1.5 grams per kilogram is a dose, right in the emergency department. And also, if that person seems to have hypotension, they need aggressive treatment because people with profound hypotension of renal syndrome are very, very vasodilated, which is, of course, as we said before, a major problem with cirrhotics. I think this will be a theme through this podcast is albumin is something we don't think of too often in the emergency department. But for many of these patients, albumin will be of benefit, in particular, the hepatorenal syndrome patient. These are patients who often need aggressive vasoactive drugs, including levofed, and supplemented with the vasopressin and octreotide. And why is that? Because those drugs constrict the profound splanchnic dilatation. But certainly, I think uh, these patients are going to require serious, uh, aggressive, highly specialized treatment with serious plans made for liver transplant discussions about that topic. Yeah, it sends chills up the spine of all hepatologists. And the other thing to keep in mind, of course, is don't be the cause of their hepatorenal syndrome. The excessive use of diuretics and the underuse of paracentesis and the underuse of albumin when you do a paracentesis, which we should talk about, the underuse of albumin, the underuse of paracentesis, and the overuse of diuretics in crazy doses increases the risk of hepatorenal syndrome. And of course, the diuretic of choice in cirrhosis with ascites is lactone. And now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Things in emergency medicine have really been under strain and change for the last several months. COVID has exposed weaknesses in our scheduling systems and practices. When staff went off sick or on quarantine, we really saw how thin our rosters were and how every worker and every shift mattered. Whether your ED has lower than usual volumes or higher volumes because of COVID, your old scheduling templates just don't cut it. Through all of this, Metricade has been agile and responsive. Metricade actively participates in the day-to-day reactions to COVID on the workforce. They help modify schedules on the fly, adjusting hours of shifts and daily rosters, and making the most of limited resources. 
By taking over a lot of the new and complicated administrative burden on managing our schedules during the pandemic, they've shown that they are more than just a scheduling system. They become true partners in staff health, safety, and satisfaction. Metricade is ready to bring you on board anytime, and I'm confident they'll be able to help us through whatever uncertainty lies ahead. All right, our liver patient that we presented here presents with confusion, altered LOA. And of course, hepatic encephalopathy comes to mind amongst a whole variety of other possibilities of what the causes of the altered LOA in a liver patient. We know that the more altered the patient is with hepatic encephalopathy, that the more severe the disease is. But how do you sort out whether a liver patient's altered LOA is due to hepatic encephalopathy or something else like sepsis or renal failure or alcohol withdrawal or subdural hematoma for that matter? Dr. Himmel? Hepatic encephalopathy has got some classical features, but I'm going to say something I've said before and I'm probably going to say it again. You've got to have a broad differential diagnosis and rule out certain things because to a certain extent, hepatic encephalopathy is not only based on certain criteria, but it's also a diagnosis of exclusion. Uh, I find patients with cirrhosis often come to the hospital for two major reasons. They're either got ascites or the encephalopathic. And the presentation with encephalopathy will be they're not doing well. They're confused, disoriented, not eating, not moving. So how do you diagnose encephalopathy? Well, it's an altered patient. How about the physical examination? You look for all the features of cirrhosis we talked about. And then, of course, you're going to look for asterisks, which I actually find extremely helpful. You get the patient to hold up their hands, extend their wrists, keep your fingers apart, and watch their hands. And you get this intermittent, jerky, non-rhythmic flexion of the fingers and the wrists in an uncoordinated, unpredictable manner, perhaps every two, three, four, or five seconds. And if you see that's an altered patient and you pre rule other conditions up to and including getting a CT scan perhaps, but certainly doing your blood work and your analysis, and certainly checking their hemoglobin, when you've done all that, I think you can pretty safely diagnose hepatic encephalopathy, a common reason for the patient arriving in the first place. All right, let's talk a little bit more about some of the sort of diagnostic features of hepatic encephalopathy. First of all, ammonia levels, useful or not useful? Dr. Steinhardt? Everybody wants to obtain an ammonia level, but they are not going to help you in this scenario. Certainly, we see encephalopathy with uh, normal or near-normal ammonia levels, so they won't guide you in principle. In fact, in Canada, many of our Canadian audience know of choosing wisely Canada, and we're all aware of the emergency medicine considerations that they advise on saving money and time on useless tests. In the hepatology section of choosing wisely Canada, is like, do not order or rely on ammonia levels in this scenario. Number one on the list for hepatology. So it's not going to help you, and it might mislead you if you're if you come across a normal or near-normal ammonia level, it may steer you away from an appropriate diagnosis of hepatic encephalopathy. So, nicks on ammonia levels. All right. So, no ammonia levels, they can actually be misleading. Dr. Himmel, you had mentioned asterisks. My understanding is that 
asterisks are very helpful to diagnose hepatic encephalopathy, but they're not specific for hepatic encephalopathy. What else causes asterisks besides hepatic encephalopathy? So asterisks is a characteristic of metabolic encephalopathy, anything which metabolically screws up your brain. Liver failure clearly will cause it. The other classical one, of course, is uh, severe renal failure. Those are the two big ones, renal failure and liver failure. Drug toxicity, I'm sure, can cause it. Not too many other things that I'm actually aware of, but it's just so it's any metabolic disturbance. But I say the commonest would be liver and kidney. So if you, if you want to elicit this test, but the patient is not compliant, typically, you know, they're level of consciousness is so low that they can't actively perform the test. A trick is just anchor the forearm of the patient, typically on the railing of the stretcher, and then forcibly dorsiflex them. And you could bring out asterisks, much like any myoclonic jerk or clonus that might be useful in the patient who's severely altered. All right, great pearl. One of the very important questions to ask in someone who presents with possible hepatic encephalopathy is what's precipitating the hepatic encephalopathy. So Dr. Steinhardt, what are the common precipitants of hepatic encephalopathy that we need to address in the ED? Right. So noncompliance is a big issue here. Many of these patients have previous presentations of hepatic encephalopathy and are sent home on maintenance therapy, including lactulose, neomycin, not so much anymore, but rifaximin antibiotics. And so they may have stopped taking these medicines and so rebound with the encephalopathy. Of course, the alcohol is typically uh, a causative agent, if not narcotics and other sedating medicines that they're either using recreationally or unwittingly given by health practitioners. And then blood, of course, in the gut is degraded into many metabolites, including ammonia. And these patients are at high risk for bleeding either chronically or intermittently. They all have alcoholic gastritis. They may have varices that ooze. And so is this a presentation? And then electrolyte disturbances, we talked about hypokalemia, typically from vomiting, again, from the gastritis or the alcoholic ketoacidosis that Dr. Himmel referred to, or other causes of vomiting and loss of potassium that in of itself increases ammonia in the body and the concomitant metabolic alkalosis that further increases the ammonia in the body and translocation across the blood-brain barrier, these influence precipitation of HE and constipating drugs, of course, and then sepsis, right? Anyone who presents with HE and has acidic fluid needs a tap to make sure that there isn't an occult infection going on in the acidic fluid. We'll talk about that, I think, a little more later, or anywhere else where the, the hunt is on for infection with these patients, for sure. All right. So just to review there, in terms of the triggers of hepatic encephalopathy, we need to think about medication noncompliance, overuse of diuretics, and any kind of sedative medications that might have been started recently. GI bleeding is up there, which a lot of these patients will have. Volume depletion, infection, and uh, hypo-K is another one, which actually decreases ammonia excretion, and same with constipation. So those are the things that we should be looking out for in the emergency department in terms of triggers of hepatic encephalopathy. 
Now, those are the triggers of hepatic encephalopathy. Dr. Himmel, what's your approach to managing the hepatic encephalopathy patient in the ED? Well, there are specific approaches and general approaches. So I get the specific approaches out of the way. If you find the underlying cause, you definitely have to treat it. You know, sodium of 118 has to be managed. Infection has to be managed. Bleeding has to be managed. Chalk has to be managed. But let's see if you find none of those things. And it's probably simply a matter of the commonest causes. Malnutrition, electrolyte disturbances, not taking the lactulose. What do you do? Well, assuming it's only a stage one or stage two or early stage three and the patient is not at big risk of dying from intracranial hypertension, it's managed primarily by not an excessive amount of protein and lactulose. You start a dose of lactulose, uh, probably I think it's about 40 cc's and repeat it a couple hours until the patient begins to have bowel movements and they have to stay in a maintenance dose of lactulose. There's a few other drugs as well long-term, but lactulose is still the major direct drug to try to keep the urea in your gut and minimize absorption of urea. All right, so that's for the not-so-sick hepatic encephalopathy patient. What about for the really sick patient? I understand there's also rifaximin. So rifaximin is an antibiotic which is, number one, not absorbed at all. Number two, primarily it goes after E. coli, the bacteria which produces a lot of the ammonia. So rifaximin is used primarily for long-term maintenance. So lactulose will be started in the emergency department. You can certainly start rifaximin, but that's used primarily for long-term maintenance. But certainly you can start in the department. There's a couple of very small studies, I mean very small, looking at the polyethylene glycol or PEG and uh, seeing if you, can, if you can basically get the empty using PEG. And certainly a couple of small studies done in the States showed that four liters of PEG compared to lactulose in this one study that I looked at began to resolve hepatocephalopathy more quickly than the lactulose did. That's hardly mainstream right now. But the PEG is primarily given by a NG tube. So it's used in people with pretty bad hepatic encephalopathy. So certainly lactulose in the patient who can swallow and you've got the option now of using PEG in someone who's quite seriously ill with encephalopathy, but has to be given through an NG tube. And rifaximin, fine, but more for long-term maintenance. Well, if, they, if they're not able to swallow, they may be at a point where they need intubation, if for no other reason to protect their airway. And then you can slip an NG down, not just for PEG, but you could use lactulose that way. And of course, there are lactulose enemas that can be given, but preferably when the patient is up in the ICU, the emerged nurses won't think highly of you if you keep ordering lactulose enemas and that they have to give. Well, I must say, though, I have ordered one that emerged once or twice in the last 10 years. You put 300 cc's of lactulose with 700 cc's of sodium chloride and give a one liter retention enema. So that's another option. I've done it a few times. That takes a bit of work. <laughs> you don't make friends with the nurses that way, Walter? <laughs> Zero. <laughs> <laughs> well, Walter proves himself in, uh, in other ways. and They have respect for him. Absolutely. I think he's probably the only doc in our group that could get away with ordering one liter lactulose enema. <laughs> after, after lots of preparation and negotiation. <laughs> High, hot, and a hell of a lot. <laughs> Let's go back to our case. So let's say you've 
given this patient some fluids, you've given them antibiotics, you've given them lactulose, but the nurse calls you to the recess room because your acute liver failure, multi-organ failure patient is now hypertensive and bradycardic. Hmm. So, Dr. Steinhardt, what do you think is going on here? Well, this is an unusual scenario for a cirrhotic patient to be in, in that they run low. I think we already talked about how their total volume, body volumes are diminished, and typically they present and run with systolics in 90. So, and especially if this is a change, then you have to be concerned for the beginnings of a Cushing's response. And that may be as a sequelae and a a continuum of the hepatic encephalopathy de novo, or you've missed something like a subdural hematoma. One thing in the differential diagnosis in the hypertensive and bradycardic liver patient who you suspect has hepatic encephalopathy would be a subdural hematoma. What about cerebral edema? Now, I understand that one common cause of death in uh, patients with acute liver failure is actually cerebral edema. Well, I think that's totally true. In fact, I think patients with even stage two encephalopathy have some cerebral edema. In fact, one of the theories about uh, about asterixis and hepatic encephalopathy is to get swelling of their astrocytes and some edema and so forth. So if they progress and they're unconscious and you've ruled out an intracranial hemorrhage and subdural and their optic nerve to ultrasound is wide, they've got ICP and they have Cushing's response and significant uh, edema of the brain. Absolutely. This is serious. I mean, these patients are close to death, aren't they? So mannitol is an option. It's given over about 20 minutes. It's a gram per kilogram. You want to increase the serum osmolality by about 20. So this is one place where you really would measure the serum osmolality and check it later. And they require very close monitoring. But I think in this particular case, the better drug is hypertonic saline. Hypertonic saline has lots of advantages. Number one, it doesn't decrease your intravascular volume. It maintains your intravascular volume, which in most patients with hepatosopathy is a desirable thing to do. And number two, uh, there's an endpoint, which is a sodium between 145 up to, but not more than 155. And number three, it's quite easily given and it doesn't produce a tremendous fluid shifts in your entire body, which mannitol might give. So those are your two drugs then. Mannitol, hypertonic saline, but clearly this is gonna be given in consultation rapidly with uh, who's ever appropriate, whether it's your internist, neurosurgeon, or the person who's gonna be receiving the patient shortly. Patients this ill need monitoring in a neurosurgical center if you're committed to saving your lives and committed possibly to considering a liver transplant. These are not the kind of people who do well without intensive tertiary care of support. Yeah, they're going to get a, an intracranial bolt eh, for monitoring. Absolutely. I want to talk more about fluids, talking about hypertonic saline, and kind of just back up a bit and talk about fluids in general with these liver patients. Uh, we've talked about how these patients are often volume depleted, how they get vasodilatation, and they often need fluids. What is the best fluid of choice for these dry patients? Yeah, well, let's say you've got to use clinical judgment here and see what you're treating. If you're treating someone who's in florid shock, you've got to treat the shock. Are they bleeding? You have to give blood. Are they in florid shock? You may well have to give boluses of normal saline in 250 cc's. If your albumin is low, you may well have to give albumin 
For example, a person's shocking dehydrating has an albumin of 10 grams per liter or one gram per deciliter, you're gonna give albumin. What do you not give? Well, you sure don't give D5W. You don't give two-thirds, one-third. These patients are hyponatremic uh, as it is. Normal saline is a good starting point. Ringer's lactate? Well, if the patient has a high lactate and serious liver disease, this is one case where you might at least with your first or second liter stick with normal saline rather than Ringer's lactate because there's a theoretical possibility might raise your lactate, but that might be somewhat overstated. I wouldn't be absolute about that. So you've got to use fine clinical judgment and combine it with treating underlying causes and in someone who's shocky, probably using early vasoactive drugs, including noradrenaline and vasopressin, depending on what you're treating. Blood loss, dehydration, pedorenal syndrome. There's a lot of fine tuning here. But certainly normal saline is a completely rational thing to start with in these situations. And using early vasoactive drugs in fluorochoc is very important. And give blood if they're bleeding. Don't underestimate subtle bleeding from varices, which can happen quite subtly at first. And don't miss sepsis, of course. It's not absolutely clear in terms of fluids what these patients should get. Consider normal saline as your initial fluid resuscitation crystalloid of choice. It's controversial whether Ringer's lactate should be that first choice or not. And then albumin can be considered in the patient who has a very, very low albumin, the patient who has hepatorenal syndrome, in some centers, they do recommend albumin for patients with severe hepatic encephalopathy. So that's something you should speak to your intensivist about. I agree. And certainly, if you're going to do a paracentesis on patients and remove more than five liters, there's general agreement, and I think it's rational to do this, to get albumin replacement. So if you're going to remove more than five liters of fluid, it's extremely rational and protective to give approximately eight grams of albumin per liter of acidic fluid removed. We will get on to some more details about uh, tapping bellies in part two of the podcast. So just to review there a little bit about hepatic encephalopathy, first ask yourself if hepatic encephalopathy is the primary cause of the altered mental status. You wanna rule out other things like subdurals and sepsis first. Have a low threshold to treat on spec because this is a diagnosis of exclusion that might be hard to definitively diagnose in the ED. Find the precipitant and correct it. The number one precipitant that we need to find is infection or sepsis. There's medication noncompliance. There's things like benzos, GI bleeds, volume depletion. Try and correct all of those. Correct the assumed high ammonia. So don't trust the ammonia levels. And you'll be giving lactulose or PEG or both. And then um, probably when they're admitted, they're going to get rifaximin. And finally, Correct all the low stuff because often the K is low, often the sodium is low. Um, You want to make sure that all of these things are corrected as well. And some of these patients may develop cerebral edema and sometimes it's subtle. So it's probably best to keep their head at 45 degree angle and then consider giving hypertonic saline if there's any signs of cerebral edema clinically. That about wraps it up for part one of this episode on liver emergencies. In part two, we're going to be talking about thrombosis and bleeding and the quagmire and confusion around thrombosis and bleeding in liver patients. We're going to be talking about spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, about tapping the belly, 
and lots of other goodies when it comes to assessing and treating the patient with liver disease in the emergency department. (laughs) 